Have you ever been so angry you felt like murdering someone? Obviously you never would, but you're just angry enough that you mutter, I could kill them. Maybe you startle yourself a little bit by just how angry you are? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has so far never killed anyone. This week... Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Or did she? As of writing this sentence, I'm on the fence, which is uncomfortable, so let's get going. On the evening of August 4, 1892, the Fall River Herald in Massachusetts ran this story on their front page. Shocking crime. A venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Borden lose their lives at the hands of a drunken farmhand. Police searching actively for the fiendish murderer. The community was terribly shocked this morning to hear that an aged man and his wife had fallen victims to the thirst of a murderer and that an atrocious deed had been committed. The news spread like wildfire and hundreds poured into 2nd Street. The deed was committed at number 62 2nd Street where for years Andrew J. Borton and his wife had lived in happiness. It is supposed that an axe was the instrument used as the bodies of the victims are hacked almost beyond recognition. The commotion began just after 11 a.m. when 32-year-old Lizzie Borden screamed, Maggie, come down! Come down quick! Father's dead! Somebody came in and killed him! Lizzie had apparently come upon the gruesome scene of her father hacked to death almost beyond recognition in the sitting room of the family's three-story home. Bridget Maggie Sullivan, the Borden's maid, ran out and called for someone to alert the police. Once police arrived, they covered Andrew Borden's body, which was still warm, and searched the downstairs for a weapon or signs of an intruder. After an entire half hour of searching, during which time apparently no one had thought to check upstairs, even though Lizzie must have already reported to police that both her parents were home at the time of the murder, Bridget, a.k.a. Maggie, found Abby Borden, the aged wife, upstairs lying face down on the floor of the guest bedroom in much the same condition as her venerable husband downstairs. The amount of blood on the floor beneath her suggested that she had died about an hour and a half earlier. Now, if it strikes you as defying common sense that members of the household were left free to wander around a crime scene where it hadn't occurred to anyone to check upstairs, despite the conspicuous absence of the first victim's wife downstairs, you'd be correct. Unfortunately, there was a lot to police work back in the old days that defied common sense. For example, crime scene photos weren't always thought to be needed because it was believed that the last thing the victim saw was burned into their eyeballs. Never mind that in the 200 or so years that this was the prevailing theory, no one had figured out how to retrieve the burned images in the victim's eyes. I suppose they just had jars and jars of eyeballs in the fridge at the police station just waiting for someone to figure out how to get the images out of them. 
Finally, HR puts up a note that says, Fridge will be cleaned every Friday. If you do not put your name on your food or your jars of eyeballs, they will be tossed. Anyway, according to the Spooky Stuff website, even if they had figured out how to print the tiny Polaroids in our eyeballs, it wouldn't have mattered in Andrew Borden's case because, quote, one of his eyeballs was cut in half, which meant he was sleeping at the time of his murder. And if you want me to explain how one could possibly know someone was sleeping because their eyeball was cut in half, I'm afraid to say that I cannot because it makes absolutely no sense to me. I suppose one could argue that it would be hard to hit someone in the face with an axe when that someone's eyes are wide open and they see you coming. They might, at the very least, have put their hands up in defense. Probably the more accurate assessment would be one of his eyeballs was cut in half, which means possibly his eyes were closed when he was struck. As for Abby Borden, the aged wife, whose name, by the way, is never mentioned in the Fall River Herald article, her father's name is mentioned, but hers? Unimportant. It looks like she was struck from behind, so her eyeball photograph would have been useless. So, having found nothing, including the other murder victim until the maid happened upon her and was like, uh, guys, you better come upstairs, the police decided the correct thing to do was declare that the murderer was a drunk Portuguese farmhand who had been by the Borden's home earlier in the morning looking to get paid for his work. This was the drunken farmhand mentioned in the Fall River Herald's headline that night. Could you imagine police spreading false information today? Dramatic pause. Anyway. Bridget, the maid, is conspicuously absent from all the accounts of the initial investigation. She claimed to have been either outside washing windows or resting in her room when Lizzie discovered her father's body in the sitting room, depending on which account you read. Regardless, no one seemed particularly interested in or curious about the maid, who was, by Lizzie's account at least, the only one in the house at the time of Andrew Borden's murder. Two days later, police returned to the Borden house to do another search and found a hatchet head in the basement. Despite its being completely free of blood and missing most of its handle, police were like, we have found the murder weapon! Huzzah for us! Never mind that the Bordens had a small farm and a hatchet is a pretty common farm tool. Never mind the illogicalness that is a murderer disposing of the handle of the murder weapon, but not the actual weapon part of it. With the alleged murder weapon found inside the house, police began to suspect that the culprit was someone in the Borden household. Regardless of how flimsy the theory was, the media began to suspect Lizzie, and did so in black and white for all to see. I suppose it was only natural for suspicion to fall on Lizzie. She was 32 and unmarried, which was in and of itself cause for suspicion. Her older sister, Emma, who also incidentally was unmarried, the Borden parents must have been so ashamed, was out of town being fitted for a dress the morning of the murder. Aside from her failure to marry, however, there wasn't much that would initially point to Lizzie as the culprit. 
By all accounts, Lizzie Borden was mild-mannered and even-tempered. According to a young adult true crime novel called The Borden Murders, Lizzie grew up to become a cultured, reasonably well-educated woman, active in her church and community's charitable works. She had a weakness for orange sherbet, a noticeable fondness for pansies. Same girl, same. Oh wait, I think they're talking about the flower? And a fine hand at needlework. She taught a Sunday school for Chinese immigrants and served as secretary of the local fruit and flower mission and treasurer of the local Young Women's Christian Temperance Union. If not considered beautiful, she was certainly not repulsive. Same girl. Same. However well-behaved and kind and not repulsive Lizzie had proven herself to be, the Boston Daily Globe ran a piece that claimed Lizzie and Abby Borden, who was actually Lizzie's stepmother, had never gotten along and had stopped speaking to one another for a considerable time. Of course, plenty of people don't get along with their step-parents. It doesn't mean they want to murder them. However, at this time, a local drugstore clerk told the police that Lizzie was in his shop the day before the murders, trying to buy prussic acid, which is basically cyanide. And I've mentioned before on this podcast that in the olden days, many households kept extremely dangerous and deadly poisons just lying around willy-nilly. In small doses, some poisons could be used for pain management or household cleaning. But prussic acid isn't really something one might need on hand. I would elaborate on its uses, but it's boring and who cares? It wasn't really necessary in most day-to-day chores. Lizzie claimed to have needed the acid in order to clean a sealskin cape, which seems like overkill. Like cleaning a blanket with chloroform. Whatever the reason, admittedly, trying to purchase deadly poison the day before her parents were murdered isn't a great look for Lizzie. Add to that, members of the Borden household had taken ill in the days before the murders, with symptoms that could be linked to intentional poisoning. It was suspected that the perpetrator used the milk bottles, which were delivered to the house in the morning and left on the porch. There would have been ample opportunity for someone in the household to poison the milk. Though, it could have just been a bad batch of milk. Again, it's unclear why police initially pinned the crime on a drunk Portuguese farmhand, but incidentally, during the investigation, police did find out there was indeed a Portuguese farmhand who worked for the Bordens at Swansea Farm, which is not only where the Bordens got their milk delivered from, but which apparently Mr. Borden owned. Supposedly, the Portuguese farmhand had been sick in bed at the time of the murders. Call me crazy, but a bad batch of milk seems like a likely culprit of the mysterious illness that befell the Bordens before their murder. But what do I know? I'm no crackpot 19th century policeman. Though neither, it seems, were any of the policemen investigating this case. At any rate, suspicion grew around Lizzie when investigators, quote, found it odd that Lizzie didn't know where her stepmother Abby had been 9 a.m. the morning of the murder after she, Abby, had gone upstairs to put shams on the pillows. 
Why it was Lizzie's job to track the movements of her stepmother is beyond me. I guess the reasoning was if Lizzie didn't have a husband, what else could she possibly have to do besides keep tabs on everyone in the house? Investigators also didn't like Lizzie's alibi during what they said was the 15 minutes in which her father, Andrew, was murdered. Now, how they narrowed his murder down to a 15-minute window is anybody's guess, but Lizzie claimed that she had been in the barn hayloft looking for sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip and eating pears. And this is wholly unimportant, but just so your mind isn't snagged on what the hell a sinker is, it's a little Pac-Man-shaped iron ball that you pinch onto your fishing line so it sinks rather than floats. This alibi is fishy. That one's going to get me a Pulitzer, folks. Look, keep house however you want, you know? Like, my apartment is a disorganized disaster, but what the hell are fishing irons doing scattered around the hayloft? The hayloft? The hayloft apparently was completely undisturbed when inspected by police, with no footprints in the dust or any sign that anyone had been up there. But maybe Lizzie had been in the barn, just maybe not in the hayloft? If she was, I don't think she was looking for lead sinkers. What if Lizzie was in the barn doing something salacious and forbidden? Don't worry, I'll get to that. One week after the murders, Lizzie was arrested. At an inquest two days earlier, judges found Lizzie's four-hour testimony to be confusing and contradictory. But to be fair, her parents had been brutally murdered just days earlier, and it's safe to say she might have had a touch of PTSD. Add to that being the main suspect with all eyes on her, I imagine that would be, I don't know, stressful? Whether or not she was guilty, it's not hard to imagine she wasn't thinking tremendously clearly around that time. After entering a plea of not guilty, Lizzie was ordered to face a grand jury. At trial, the case laid out against Lizzie, though largely circumstantial, was, I gotta say, pretty damning. The morning of the murders, Lizzie's older sister Emma was 15 miles away in Fairfield being fitted for a dress, and the Borden's house guest John Morse was visiting relatives. The only other person home was Bridget, a.k.a. Maggie, the Borden's maid. And Bridget was either never suspected or was ruled out before anyone could make any news of it. When questioned, Bridget said Lizzie had been wearing a blue dress the morning of the murders. The same blue dress, prosecutors cried, that Lizzie herself admitted to burning in a kitchen fire just days after the murder. Lizzie claimed she burned the dress because it was stained with paint. Again, this seems like overkill. Like, just toss the dress in the trash, girl. It's fine. There's no need to burn it unless you're hiding something. Needless to say, if Lizzie had indeed killed her parents in that dress, it would have been covered in blood. Unless she hacked them to death in the nude, which, believe it or not, was floated as an actual possibility. Allow me, if you will, to debunk the shit out of this one.
The aged Mrs. Borden, it was determined, died about an hour and a half before her venerable husband. So there was an hour and a half during which Lizzie was just traipsing around the house naked? I mean, sure, I do it all the time, but not when anyone else is home. Not while my maid is cleaning the windows, you know? Also, corsets were a big thing in the late 1800s. Do you know how hard it is to put on a corset? It takes two people. So Lizzie would have had to kill her stepmother, hang out for about an hour and a half naked, then kill her father, then wash her face, hands, and hair, and reset her hair into whatever Fakakta 1800 style was in at the moment, put on a whole outfit, including a corset, and then pretend to find her father in enough time that by the time the police got there, it was determined that he'd only been dead about 15 minutes. Really? Even if she hadn't been naked, there was still the hands, face, and hair to deal with. Lord knows I've never hacked anyone to death, but I'm pretty sure it's messy work. Also, the hatchet prosecutors claim was the murder weapon was clean. Prosecutors claimed Lizzie broke the handle off the hatchet because it was covered in blood, which makes no sense because A, the actual hatchet part of the hatchet, and the broken stub would also have been covered in blood and probably bits of brain. And B, do you know how hard it is to break a handle off a hatchet? Like, are we supposed to believe Lizzie had freakish strength? At trial, one police officer claimed that the rest of the handle was found nearby, but another officer refuted this. At any rate, the rest of the handle was never presented in court. The case against Lizzie also included claims that she didn't get along with her parents. Her father was financially well-off and notoriously tight-fisted. He supposedly bought a relative of his wife a house, and Lizzie was like, um, literally, what the fuck? Also brought against Lizzie was police claims that she insisted Abby be referred to as her stepmother rather than her mother, which maybe she insisted upon because that's what Abby was? Like, I don't call my stepmother mom, even though I've known her more than twice as long as I knew my mother, because I had a mother and her title was mom. Someone not calling their step-parent mom or dad is not evidence that they want to murder them. There have been claims over the years of abuse, including incest, but it's impossible to say one way or the other if any of this is true. According to the blog Famous Trials, some local merchants claimed that Lizzie was known to shoplift at times, and she was rumored to have stolen money and jewelry from her father the year before the murder. One could argue that abused children sometimes shoplift, but then again, so do women with not a lot of job prospects and no husband to support them. Money was, in fact, the motive prosecutors claimed for the murders. Lizzie, they said, was tired of her father's stinginess and wanted the inheritance she would get only if her father and stepmother were gone. Bridget, the Borden's maid, refuted any talk of ill will between Lizzie and her parents. According to Bridget, the family got along nicely. Of all the circumstantial evidence presented against Lizzie Borden at trial, one seemingly crucial piece was rather amazingly left out. The judge would not allow Lizzie's attempted purchase of the potential lethal poison the day before the murders to be given as evidence because prosecution couldn't prove that she was planning to use it to murder her parents. 
In his 1937 book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, author Edmund Pearson said, At this, the layman is simply flawed. To decide that a jury investigating a murder shall not be allowed to hear of an attempt by the accused to procure a deadly poison only 24 hours before the murder seems to him equivalent to ruling that they should not be told of an attempt to buy a revolver because the revolver may have innocent uses. In other words, the judge was like, you can't prove that she was buying the poison to kill her parents with, which... I mean, sure, but they couldn't prove that she wasn't buying the poison to kill her parents with. Either way, it seems like an important piece of information in a murder trial. Personally, I was a bit shocked to learn that Lizzie Borden was found not guilty. I mean, yes, there was no actual evidence against her, but many a person has been sentenced to death on a lot less evidence. I guess it pays to be a wealthy white lady. Who knew? The New York Times ran a piece praising the not guilty verdict that called the Fall River police, quote, the usual inept and stupid and muddle-headed sort that such towns manage to get for themselves, end quote. Wow, New York Times. Who hurt you? Lizzie lived another 35 years, choosing remarkably to stay in Fall River, I moved away from New York City nearly 20 years ago because I thought maybe some people didn't like me. Could you imagine living 35 years in a town of fewer than 100,000 people who may or may not think you hacked your parents to death? Not only that, but she bought a house on a high hill, which meant everyone could see it and be reminded of her at all times. I mean, the constitution on this lady... The famous nursery rhyme about Lizzie whacking her parents with an axe was written while Lizzie was alive. Lizzie Borden took an axe. I wonder if children ever taunted her on the street with it. And if they did, if she was like, actually, my stepmother got about 18 whacks and my dad got like 11. So check your facts, assholes. But... If Lizzie Borden didn't murder Andrew and Abby Borden, who did? So, who killed the Bordens? Well, there's the other Borden child, Emma, who stood to gain as much financially as her sister. Author Frank Spearing concocted a whole scenario in which Emma drove her buggy the 15 miles from Fairfield, where she was having her dress fitting, to Fall River, killed her parents, and got back to Fairfield in time to receive the telegram alerting her that her parents had been murdered. This is a stretch. First of all, there's nearly an hour and a half between murders, during which Emma would have had to hide out, which is like, why? Why wouldn't she have killed them both one after the other and hightailed it back to Fairfield? If the times of death were correct, she would have had to kill her father between about 10.45 and 11.05 a.m. and get back to Fairfield before noon to be there in time to receive the telegram. It's very hard to imagine Emma sneakily riding her horse and buggy back in time so as not to be seen fleeing the house. 
Chances are someone would have been like, come to think of it, I did see Emma Borden around 11.10 a.m. screaming for her horse to go faster. Also, she was covered in blood. Not to mention the dressmaker would have been like, she left for about two hours, and when she came back, she was shaky and seemed like she'd just been through a huge ordeal and then rode her horse and buggy about 15 miles as fast as she could. Also, she was covered in blood. Then there's John Morse, the house guest, who also, incidentally, was Lizzie's biological mother's brother. John's alibi was that he'd left the residence at 8.45 a.m. and went to the post office to send a postcard, after which he dropped in on some relatives who were in town from Minnesota. According to John and the people he was visiting, they hung out until around 11.30 a.m., John then took a bus back to the Borden house, entering through the back so he could pick some pears on the way, and was greeted by Bridget and a neighbor named Sawyer, who apparently said, did you know Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been murdered? And not that this is important at all, but, like, there were no police at the front of the house to tip John off that something had happened? He apparently arrived back around noon. Had the police already left by then? He really didn't notice a murder investigation going on on the first floor. And then this random guy is just casually like, sup, the Bordens are dead. The 1800s were weird, man. But Rich Little and Beverly Falstad, in their book Cold Case to Case Closed, believe there are holes and inconsistencies in John's story. They believe he left his visit with his relatives an entire hour earlier than he first claimed, giving him ample time to kill Mr. Borden, whom they think he killed because of an argument they'd had the night before about something financial. It turns out when you have a lot of money, people regularly want to kill you. That's why I always make sure I have none. I don't know why in this scenario he would have killed Mrs. Borden an hour and a half before killing Mr. Borden, but there you have it. Or, Little and Folstad theorize, it's possible John Morris had to kill Mr. Borden because he had already killed Mrs. Borden. Why did he kill Mrs. Borden? I don't know. People said sometimes she could be caustic and it's possible she and John had words with each other and John, who, by the way, was a butcher and always carried a cleaver with him, kind of snapped and hacked her to bits. Those must have been some words. Now, I know some of you are like, get to the forbidden and salacious part, and I am, you naughty little devils. There is a well-worn theory posited in plenty of books about this case, as well as the 2012 movie Lizzie, that Lizzie and Bridget, the maid, were having an affair. I highly recommend the movie, if only to listen to Kristen Stewart mumble in an Irish accent. I don't know how much of the movie is complete conjecture and how much of it is based on diaries or gossip or whatever. And I've said before that historical fiction makes me itchy because it tends to end up permanently blurring the lines between what really happened and what studio executives think will sell more tickets. But this particular historical fiction is filled with intrigue and lies and hot, albeit fully clothed, lesbian sex, which I'm definitely here for. 
The theory basically is that Lizzie and Bridget were having an affair, which was obviously forbidden for a whole host of reasons, and Lizzie and or Bridget killed the Bordens after they were caught in the act. It seems mostly this theory came about because Lizzie was single, liked going to the theater, and may or may not have had a, quote, friendship with an actress later in her life. So, obviously, she was a lesbian. Ergo, she was having an affair with the maid and killed her parents over it. I mean, okay. But what if Lizzie, her sister Emma, and Bridget were all in on it and paid someone to do the job? Don't ask me how the murderer got out of the house or through town covered in blood. Maybe they hosed off in the back before the police got there. Maybe they wore some kind of covering they could stuff in a bag and simply walk through town with. Let's not get bogged down in the details. This is my very own theory, and I'm standing behind it. Tell your friends. At the end of the day, I think it's impossible that Lizzie and Bridget didn't at the very least hear two people being murdered in the house. Even if Mrs. Borden didn't cry out after being hit in the head with an axe, which is hard to imagine, surely her body hitting the floor would have raised some suspicions. You'd think one of them would have been like, what was that? Let's go check it out. And even Mr. Borden, if he was sleeping when he was struck, would have instantly woken up and screamed out after the first blow. Violent deaths are very rarely silent. Unless, unless Lizzie and Bridget didn't hear what was going on in the house because they were busy doing it in the barn, which of course they couldn't admit to. Lead sinkers, my eye. She was looking to sink something, but it wasn't fishing line if you catch my drift. It's actually pretty easy to fall into the maybe she was having an affair with the maid trap. And then, of course, as with any mystery, there's the theory about aliens. Just kidding. No one has figured out how to blame this one on aliens. Unless, unless, aliens came down and tried to abduct Mr. and Mrs. Borden. But they fought back, and the aliens... Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Have you ever had that dream where you find hidden rooms in your apartment? Well, what if that dream came true and you found a whole secret room you didn't know existed? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. Our voice actors for this episode were Lauren Hooper and Luther Creek. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 